You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This segment is made possible by an educational grant from Shire Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to Updates from the Mayo Clinic, focusing on primary care pediatrics and child mental health. Here's your host, Dr. Peter S. Jensen, a childhood and adolescent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is a dear friend and colleague, and one from whom I've learned a lot over the last five, six, seven years, Dr. Marty Stein, Professor of Pediatrics and Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics at Rady Children's Hospital and at the University of California, San Diego, where Marty is a professor. Marty, welcome. Thanks, Peter. It's good to be here. Well, you know, you've taught so many pediatricians and residents in in your lifetime, and I actually had the pleasure to be in a ceremony once where you received the Distinguished Award at the section for the Academy of Pediatrics and Developmental Behavioral Section. I'm trying to remember the name of that award. That was the C. Anderson Aldrich Award from the Academy of Pediatrics, and it was the time we really met for the first time where we had a chance to talk. I think that's right. We talked right after, and I had heard of your work, and uh, so that was our first chance. Marty and I have been working together for five, six years now in the REACH Institute, where we're training pediatricians across the country. And Marty's also had the job of training a child psychiatrist, which is me. (laughs) So we understand the issues that pediatricians and other primary care providers face. Well, Marty, as you know, we're talking today about some of the medicines that we use in pediatric mental health, uh, used by primary care doctors. And we've covered up to this point in other podcasts in the REACH MD series using SSRIs for depression or stimulants, for example, for ADHD. But what we haven't talked about is the side effects and really how one thinks about managing them. I thought it might be useful to start with the most commonly used type of medicine, of course, the stimulants for ADHD. Marty, what are the side effects that you commonly see? Before I just go through those, I think it's important to point out probably with any psychotropic medicine, but particularly something as common as the stimulants, to talk about those side effects to the parents and the patients before we prescribe them. So there's some preparation for what might occur, particularly the more common side effects. With stimulants, the side effects are quite similar between methylphenidate and dextroamphetamine uh, forms of side effects. There's really not a major difference. The first thing is headaches and belly aches are very common the first week or two after initiating stimulants. I don't know, 15, 20% or so kids will get headache or belly ache, not severe, but something that it's, it's helpful to point out to before because it almost always resolves on its own and it's usually mild. The major concern parents have and because of all the press around stimulants is especially weight loss. Stimulants do cause anorexia in almost all children to some extent, although weight loss doesn't occur in all of them, and most of the weight loss is in the first 6 to 12 months. But it is something we need to follow carefully, and fewer occasions, stature or height can be involved also. And usually by increasing a youngster's protein and calories, we can get around that. Sometimes we have to decrease the dose. Rarely we have to stop the medication because of weight loss. Most of the time, increasing calories, particularly proteins, 
we'll do it. On the stomach aches, most kids get over those pretty quickly when the, the one in five or so do have them. I like the way you prefaced all of this by always kind of advising the parents ahead of time so they, they and the kid know what to look out for. Is there anything that you recommend to them that they should do to avoid the stomach aches or anything they could do so they're less likely to have the, those problems? You know, I usually don't, Peter, because the stomach aches are quite mild, and I think most parents and, and children can tolerate it as long as they're prepared for it. A more significant pain episode is, is not common at all, so I generally don't talk about any uh, dietary changes. But it sounds like you always do have them take the medicine on a breakfast or with something in their stomach? Certainly if they have the abdominal pain, yes. In general, it doesn't matter whether they're taking it with or without food, although most kids will be taking dose in the morning of when they have breakfast. So you mentioned that it's really a minority of kids where you were so worried about weight that you had to stop the medication altogether. Say you were using one of the typical stimulants and then you just felt like, boy, they just stopped eating and were losing weight. What would you do? Are there other medication alternatives at that point? Well, I would want to see objectively what effect it's really had on the on the weight. So, of course, we, we monitor these with every follow-up visit. If they've really plateaued their growth, that is, they're not gaining anything or even lost weight, and the stimulant's working well, I might first try to just decrease the dose and see if we can still get a good effect against core ADHD symptoms on the one hand, but not decrease the appetite as much. If that doesn't work or if the appetite suppression is more severe, I try the other stimulant. In other words, if you have a child on an amphetamine and there's anorexia and weight loss, they may not get that side effect with the other stimulant, which would be methylphenidate. Although both can cause that side effect, in the individual child, one may do it and one may not. You know, I'm reminded of the recent findings from the MTA study that you know I've been a part of for a number of years. We saw there that we saw some decrements in height, but only among those kids who never had a drug holiday over years. Like they were on it on weekends, they were on it during the summer. But, you know, we couldn't find much of a, uh, a stature problem if the kids had, you know, weekend holidays or summer holidays. Do you do that? Is that ever an option to you? Well, it's interesting. You know, in past years, we always did it. We mainly treated during the weekdays when they were in school. And that's before we recognized that ADHD not only affects academic achievements, but also socialization. So today, most people, including myself, you know, give the medicine every day. On the other hand, it's reasonable to have a holiday periodically, particularly in the summer or in the uh, winter vacation. And I think the MTA studies observation that that does diminish the decrease in stature is important. So particularly for those kids that are on it for extended periods of time, we're talking about, you know, several years I think a drug holiday occasionally is reasonable. You mentioned in some of these common side effects, sleep problems, and this is an area I've learned a lot from you on, but let's say you have a child and the appetite's maybe okay, but they're having trouble falling asleep. How does a great pediatrician handle that problem? Okay, the first thing you want to do is make sure that they didn't have that sleep problem before starting the medicine. About 25-30% of children with ADHD actually have sleep onset problems even without the medicine, which is twice the number of 
kids without ADHD. So you want to be sure it's not the medicine. Uh, but if it is the medicine, and this is not uncommon that stimulants can cause delay in sleep onset or insomnia, you do a couple of things. One, you can try decreasing the total dose of the medicine. If you're using a um, long-acting one, you just can maybe decrease it by 10 or 15% in the morning, and that may be effective. But also, and probably you should start this first, is go through a history of what the sleep pattern is before sleep, that is the in preparation for sleep, because some sleep hygiene can be very, very important. I mean, if the child is watching television and listening to Frank Zappa, and the house is chaotic, you know, that's going to affect sleep tremendously. And and some parents just aren't uh, aware of that. So you want to develop a a sleep environment before sleep time that is not stimulating, quiet, you know, a bath before bedtime, reading before bedtime, not overly adventurous stories could be quite helpful. Now, in the youngster who's getting a good response to ADHD symptoms on a stimulant, but still have sleep onset problems and you've gone through sleep hygiene and maybe you've tried a decrease in those and nothing like that works. I have found that melatonin is a safe and useful medicine to use. It's an over-the-counter sleep preparation. It only helps sleep onset. doesn't help recurrent awakening at night, which is less common with stimulants, but it can be very effective. We usually start school-age children with maybe two milligrams, and you can very safely go up to five milligrams. There's even some studies that have gone up to 10 milligrams, although I rarely go beyond five milligrams. And pediatricians should know there's a good evidence base for using melatonin for sleep onset problems both in typically developing kids as well as children with ADHD. And I try not to use the other prescription-type medicines like clonidine or some of the others, which can be used if they don't respond to these other measures. How far before sleep do you have the parent give the child the melatonin? Oh, that's a really good point, Peter. Generally, you want to give it about 45 minutes before you expect the child to go to sleep. And, and this is very important, You want to darken the room as much as possible because melatonin works best in a very dark environment. You know, many homes that's not possible as much as you'd want, but you want to just try to make that room as dark as possible. The melatonin will work more effectively. Not a good idea to have the TV going. Oh, definitely not. (laughs) No, 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 no. TVs and stereos and, 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 you know, earplugs with iPhones. And these are, of course, commonly used today, but you want to take those away from the uh, sleep environment. We're talking with Professor Marty Stein, a professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Diego, and Rady Children's Hospital. Marty's talking today about managing side effects of some of the common psychotropic medications in children. Uh, Marty, I wanted to ask you about SSRIs. And so, as we know, there's guidelines now in pediatrics for managing depression. So sometimes, or more and more, pediatricians are using these. What are the big side effects there you worry about, and how do you handle them? Many primary care pediatricians don't have a lot of clinical experience with SSRIs. And I think there's some unreasonable or undue fears about them. It's remarkable that most of the SSRIs are tolerated very well. 
I mean, we don't use a lot of them in pediatrics. We use try to use the ones that are FDA approved for either depression or anxiety, and really it's only three or four that fit that category. And most of the kids tolerate them very well. Again, like stimulants, there can be a little belly aches and headaches and fatigue and maybe a little sleep onset problems initially. Most of the time, those resolve also after several weeks. The one thing about SSRIs is, is to remember that there is evidence of increased suicidal ideation, not completing suicide, but having thoughts of suicide when you prescribe an SSRI for a depressed adolescent or a depressed school age a child. And this is probably true for anxiety as well, although most of the studies have been done with depression and SSRIs. And I think it's important to put it in perspective for parents and for, and for older children that it can be associated with thinking about suicide, but not actually planning suicide, not in a detailed way planning suicide, but just some thoughts of suicide, which many children and adolescents with depression, of course, have before initiating an SSRI. The first symptom that kind of anticipates the suicidal ideation is agitation. And I always point that out to parents when they get agitated beyond what you're usually accustomed to seeing the child. That's when I want you to call me because that may be the, the prodrome to uh, suicidal ideation. So, Marty, you know, there was this big black box scare back in early 2000s and people were claiming cause and effect and uh, and I know there was a lot of, you know, maybe 20% drop in prescriptions. But is that a fear or worry for you? Or do you say, you know, I mean, have you ever had someone suicide on an antidepressant? No, I, I have never had anyone actually commit suicide on an antidepressant or even attempt suicide. But it can be. But it's very, very, very rare. And these are probably seriously depressed individuals that you know, not only them, but I, I have never, I've never had that. And I think I have had situations where kids have gotten agitated on it. And that's something that, again, I always encourage parents to call me or adolescents to call me and consider stopping the medicine, depending on how severe it is, or just follow them very closely. We've had as our guest today, Professor Marty Stein at the University of California, San Diego, Rady Children's Hospital, a wonderful teacher, many years teaching and accolades for it. Thank you for listening to updates from the Mayo Clinic. And thank you to Shire Pharmaceuticals, whose educational grant makes this program possible. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show and many others, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash Mayo Clinic.